Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Dr. Scott Zuckerman. He's the author of Nothing Left to Prove, Nothing Left to Hide, The Long and Winding Road to Redemption of Major Sebastian Thomas Tosto. A man grows up in the shadow of a heroic World War II veteran and takes extreme measures to follow in his father's impossible footsteps, hoping to finally earn his parents' love and respect. Tom Tosto's accomplishments as a doctor and a soldier are only the tip of the iceberg that is his story. He harbors a dark secret for which he has been seeking vindication through most of his adult life. Dr. Scott Zuckerman was born in Brooklyn, New York, and attended Stuyvesant High School in Lower Manhattan. His high school English teacher, Frank McCourt, who would later win a Pulitzer Prize for his memoir, Angela's Ashes, inscribed in his yearbook, You Have Displayed the Writer's Gift, Cultivate It. Forty years later, after a successful career as a physician, Zuckerman heeded McCourt's advice. His first book, Dream of My Conrads, was published in 2017 and was awarded first place in the nonfiction category of the 2015 Utah Original Writing Competition. In 2020, he contributed two chapters to our anthology, After the Pandemic, Visions of Life Post-COVID-19. Dr. Zuckerman, welcome. Thank you. Well, I guess we're going to jump in about Major Tosto and... Uh, the Dark Secret. Everybody's going to want to know what that is. Maybe we don't want a bit about what brought you to uh, Major Tosto and why you were so interested in him. Well, Tom was one of my medical students back when I was a professor of pediatrics in New Jersey. And I had fallen out of touch with him for quite some time. After I completed my first book, I looked him up and found that after 9-11, he sold his medical practice in a, an act of pure patriotism and joined the 82nd Airborne. Wow. At the age of 50, completed jump school, probably the oldest person to ever complete jump school. Now the cutoff age is 36. He did it when he was 50 years old. Um, had combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I, after finding this out, I reconnected with him. I felt his story needed to be told. So I went ahead, and it took me quite a while, but I told his story. Yeah, I know we have his very uh, brave picture on the back of, of the book, and you know he just looks like a, an American hero in his uniform, 82nd Airborne, and so on. Uh, I did not realize that he started so late in life as a soldier. That That is quite remarkable. So he doesn't have a, like, teenage, join the Army, move up through the ranks, become a doctor, go have a practice, and then uh, continue his service, like, as a reserve. Your age, readers will read about in his life prior to going to medical school. So, oddly enough, when he was my student in New Jersey. He was older than me uh, by about eight years. And um, those accomplishments are all documented in the book. And then he goes on, has a successful career as a physician. And then again, after 9-11, decides that what he's accomplished in his life so far has not been enough. 
And that's really the story of his life, that he's always climbing uphill. He's always trying to accomplish more. He's always trying to prove himself. And finally, by the end of the book, I think he finally feels that he has proven himself. Yeah, that's great. So the World War II veteran was a father, an uncle? Well, he actually had, his father was a World War II veteran, and all three of his uncles on his father's side were World War II veterans. Um, and that was really his inspiration. That's, that's really the story of his life, is that he's been trying to live up to that image that his father and uncles um, portrayed for him. And he's lived his whole life trying to, to live up to that standard that they set. Um, that's been his goal. And I think the, the, the cover photo is him as a very young boy, mm-hmm. um, you know, in sort of military garb, firing a, a, a pop gun, I guess you'd call it back then. And from front cover to back cover, I, I think that tells the whole story of his life in, in a nutshell of that young boy growing up to be that um, major uh, brigade surgeon, 82nd Airborne. Yeah, I mean, but, but to to start jumping out of airplanes at age 50, that sounds pretty pretty scary. I know I, I wouldn't have attempted it at age 19. But because uh, I'm afraid of heights, <laughs> um, you know, I, I do like to fly in airplanes, but, uh, you know, staring down at the ground from way high up is, uh, yeah, you get a little bit of vertigo. So um, I, I guess if someone well, pushed I, me and I had the pack on my back and had to do it, I would I would do it to survive at that point. But, yeah. Oddly enough, when I had the opportunity, the very fortunate opportunity to speak with his sister, his sister shared with me that when he was a young boy, he was afraid to go on the roller coaster. Wow. So the whole family was quite shocked when he said, oh, I'm going to be a paratrooper and jump out of airplanes. They, they thought, well, that's certainly not something that was in his uh, repertoire before. Yeah. We were talking about his dad and his uncles. This almost sounds like a Saving Private Ryan kind of family. Uh, hopefully there weren't any uh, uh, casualties among them. But um, when you have that much of a family commitment, during a particular time frame, I'm sure the uh, grandparents were quite uh, concerned and always worried and wondering where their sons were. But uh, were, were any of these veterans also paratroopers? Was that a connection there, or was this just a... His, his one uncle was a paratrooper um, during World War II, yes. And um, the story of his family's service um, also is played out uh, by the end of the book. Unfortunately, his dad and his uncles all passed away before I had the opportunity to speak with them. Mm. I was very fortunate to get his dad's records. There was a 5% of military veterans, well, particularly Army veterans' records. And um, I was very fortunate that I found his records intact. I, well, I didn't find them. Uh, I mean, they were got, given to me by the archives. It took a very long time to get those records, but the the information w- there that was there was invaluable to me. Right. Um, uh, particularly not having the opportunity to speak to his father directly, um, so I was very happy to get those, and that's all outlined uh, by the end of the book. And I think that's a, a vital part of the story as well, his dad's story, because because his dad is what inspired him 
to take the the strange journey that he took through medical school and um, and then you know joining the 82nd Airborne at such a late age. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take our first break. We're talking to Dr. Scott Zuckerman, the author of Nothing Left to Prove, Nothing Left to Hide. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the history of Pennsylvania. Check out Lancaster's Golden Century, 1821 to 1921 by H.M.J. Klein. Donald Kent's The French Invasion of Western Pennsylvania or the Keystone Tombstone series written by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. Click on the Books tab at sunburypress.com and find works of history, fiction, and nonfiction from the Keystone State. I'm back with Dr. Scott Zuckerman, the author of Nothing Left to Prove, Nothing Left to Hide. And uh, Scott, I'm curious about your interest in veterans. You've you've written a couple books now about military uh, subjects. W- what brings you into that genre? I guess I've always had a respect for people who served. My age brought me in a position where I really was not able to serve in the military. A um, little too young to serve in Vietnam. Uh, by the time Desert Storm happened. I was already established in my medical practice. I guess I was not quite as patriotic and motivated as, as Tom was, um, right in the midst of growing my medical career. Um, and I think these men and women experience things that we as civilians have no idea of. We have no concept of what they face on a day-to-day basis, hour-to-hour basis, really, when they're in combat zones. And I think that is one of the reasons that their stories must be told, not just because of what they are experiencing, but because, first of all, they're doing it on our behalf, right? There's a very small percentage of those of us who serve in the military nowadays. And secondly, because they come home and they bear those scars and those wounds that Sometimes we can't see, and they're there with them always. And I think the general public needs to know what these men and women experience in order to um, better serve them once they come home. I, I don't think our country historically has done the best job of caring for our veterans after their return from service. Yeah. So that's why that that's why I'm inspired to to share these people's stories. No, yeah, that's a that's a great reason to do so. I'm going to shift back six years to your first book with us, Dreams of My Comrades. Maybe just have you talk a little bit about that for the audience who may not have uh, picked that one up. So as you're looking at nothing left to prove, nothing left to hide, also recommend the first book, uh, Dreams of My Comrades. So tease us a little bit about that one. Well, Dreams of My Comrades was a story of a World War II veteran who never told the story of his service to anyone, including his family, until he agreed to, uh, to a series of interviews with me. And um, again, it's a fascinating story of this man, his family. Um, it's very different than nothing left to prove, nothing left to hide. But there's there's an overlap there, I, I think. One of the common themes of both of these books is the the relationship between these men and their fathers. I, I think it's a it's a, an important motivating factor. Uh, those relationships, those familial relationships that 
that these men have really drove them in a certain direction in their life. I, I think for that reason, it, each book is really much more than just a war story. Uh, particularly the first book is, is much more. I delve much further into his life. I had the opportunity to interview much more of his family um, and even his psychiatrist. He gave me permission to interview his psychiatrist at the, at the, the, the VA hospital here who he had seen for many years um, for his ongoing PTSD. Um, so while the two stories are very different, obviously in vastly different eras, one is in World War II, one is the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, I think there's a tremendous amount of overlap between the stories, particularly if you look deeper than just the the combat that's described in the in in each of the books. Yeah. I think with Tosto maybe a little more clear cut on exactly what he accomplished, where he served, what he did. Your other Definitely. your other veteran I recall there being some controversy about his service and maybe his memories versus reality. Um how how did that turn out, uh, just generally speaking, without giving too much away? Was, was he um was he going through a dementia phase, or was this some kind of PTSD, or was this just the thing about memory being fallible, or maybe his memories so, were accurate and we found ultimately find the records? So my first subject was old. When I first interviewed him, he was 90s, so like 95 years old, but he was not the least bit demented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I can say that very confidently as a physician, um, and even in speaking to his um, psychiatrist, he did not suffer from uh, senile dementia at all. Um, the thing is that regardless of age, memory is a very, very complex thing. Um, you and I are not in a combat situation, and yet if, if for example, you and I were having lunch together in a, at a cafe and we witnessed a car accident outside the window of the cafe each of us could have a completely different recollection of that incident as we reported to the police uh, i could say well a red car hit a bus and you could say a blue and without a shadow of a doubt but obviously they both can't be accurate and i think that's the problem in documenting history in any sense, um, using the recollections of people, and particularly people who are in stressful combat situations, um, that um, escalates the confusion of memory um, exponentially. So I, I think that's another thematic element in both books, particularly in the first book, but even in this book, uh, I can think of one instance where I interview two men and they have a completely different recollection of who was where, right. completely different. And each man firm in his conviction that this is what happened. I know I was there and, and, and they were very firm in that. Um, so trying to tease that out as a historian and get at the truth is very tricky business indeed. Yeah, well, that's that's true of any history. I can tell you, uh, one of the things that I've come across recently, you know, you have this wonderful set of archives called the Official Records of the Civil War, and you know, I was listening to a Gettysburg Battlefield Guide talk about 
the different reports by the units that were on the front lines at you know receiving Pickett's charge and trying to repel it and the different Union commanders had different recollections as to who was where on the line and which direction they were going and what the orders were. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you have to have multiple sources and try to hypothesize which one's more accurate. And then you got to figure out, well, this one is a derivative of that one is a derivative of that one, or this one's purely original um, and different and more plausible or whatever. You know, So the historian has a lot of refereeing to do, for sure. Plus... Plus, one has to deal with intentional deception, mm-hmm. not just on the part of the veteran, which I don't think I have faced too much in, in my work, but not always been, um, or I shouldn't say our government, I, I guess that's part of it, but the military doesn't always document things the way they happen. Rather, they would document things the way they want them to be depicted mm-hmm. I, I mean i just finished reading or rereading the book abandoned ship about the, the the tragedy of the uss indianapolis during world war ii and our military was not quite on the up and up about how they reported what happened in that incident so one has to be careful even looking at records and i came across this in my first book um looking at my veterans I, the, the primary subject of that first book, looking at his military records and finding quite a few discrepancies in his official documented military record. So um, documenting history is a very challenging, it's very challenging. In many ways, it's harder than being a doctor. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Well, we're very fortunate the Indianapolis wasn't sunk until after it delivered the atom bomb. To, oh, that's to, right. To, that's true. Yeah. Otherwise, if it had been sunk before, uh, maybe uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki never happened, and the war doesn't end when it does. Yeah, yeah, well, we need to take our next break here. We'll be right back. We're talking to Dr. Scott Zuckerman. Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent authors and thinkers. Radio Free Press is our imprint for politics and social issues. Check out authors such as Pat LaMarch, author of Still Left Out in America, The State of Homelessness in the United States. Wingnuts, a field guide to everyday extremism in America by David Michael Slater. And A Year of Change and Consequences by Mark Single. Find out more by clicking the Books tab at sunburypress.com. I'm back with author Dr. Scott Zuckerman, the author of Nothing Left to Prove, Nothing Left to Hide. We're also talking about his other book, Dreams of My Comrades. And uh, some of the conversation here has been about memory, and I I know in my own personal life, <laughs> memory is sometimes uh, uh, quite, let's say, defective. And, you know, you find out over time some things I remember really well and other things I like have replaced or maybe summarized or out, you know, improperly sequenced something. But um, I I was wondering if you could comment. Uh, One of our other authors uh, has written about the fallibility of repressed memory and that there's been this industry around trying to bring that out and using that in court. And uh, I don't know if you have any opinion on that, given your opinion on memory in general. Do you think repressed memories would be more valuable than uh, ones we still have conscious uh, awareness of? Well, you know, I haven't looked at a lot of the research surrounding that. I know it's a a really hot-button topic nowadays. Um, I think there's 
some validity to that. Um, I certainly believe that um, that played a role in the subject of my first book, Dreams of My Comrades. Mm -hmm. I think that there was a lot that he wanted to forget and did his best to forget. And ultimately, he replaced those memories with other memories that were somehow on some level more palatable to him. I think that's, I think that's the case. Um, in terms of the legality of finding those memories, uh, I've treated a patient or two in my own career who had recollections of abuse that they suffered at the hands of their parents that was only uncovered through extensive psychotherapy that they had previously kind of buried in their mm -hmm. subconscious mind. Um, so I think there's some validity to that. I, I certainly wouldn't be able to say that that's 100% accurate um, in, in the sense that every time a patient, oh, I remember this happened to me, I, I can't say that that's 100% uh, infallible, but I, I think there's some truth in that and, and some usefulness in trying to dredge up those memories and get at the truth of what's, uh, what's really happened. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Um, the other thing we collaborated on, back in 2020 when all of a sudden everything was stopping, nobody could go out, books weren't selling, all uh, authors could do is write. So I thought, let's put together an imagined collection after the pandemic, visions of life post-COVID-19. And I don't think any of us want to go back and recollect what life was like during COVID-19. <laughs> and I don't want to take us back there too long, So, but I'll just spend a minute on it since we collaborated on this. And I, I think it was a great distraction for us, and we we knocked this volume out real fast. I'll just ask you, you know, your contributions. I think you had a couple chapters. Do you do you think things played out the way we envisioned back then, or do you think we were off the mark? Well, I can speak for certainly one of my two chapters was about um, the intersection of public health concerns and. Um, civil liberties concerns. Mm -hmm. And I sort of predicted that there would be a controversy about people getting vaccinated against COVID. But I certainly never envisioned the degree to which that would be um, controversial and uh, contentious. Yeah. And quite frankly, it's been disappointing to me as a physician that that whole arena has played out the way it has. The intersection of politics and medicine has really exploded in the last, I guess, three or four years since COVID started. And I think there's a lot of fault to be placed, both in the general public, on the medical profession, in the political arena. I, I can't say that any one uh, group is more to blame than others, but I do believe that this intersection of politics and medicine is not good for the general public. Doctors should do what doctors do, and politicians should, for the most part, stay out of our way. Um, and it's been disappointing to me. I, even though I sort of predicted, in, in, predicted it in that chapter, I never envisioned it to be the 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 yeah. I mean, people protesting, and uh, it's really been unbelievable to me. I agree. It, it's amazing. It, science in general seems to have become political. 
I'm reminded. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm reminded of when Ronald Reagan was shot and he was going in for surgery and he joked, "I hope you're all Republicans." And the lead physician says, "We're all Republicans today, sir." And, right. Uh, right. You know, I don't think that kind of banter would happen today. Um, I agree. I, I agree with you. Um, it's actually remarkable to me that, that, I mean, this is sort of getting off topic, but the divide in our country is more stark today than certainly any time since the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to me, it's a, I don't know what the solution is. But as a physician, I've been, I've been disappointed in the, the, um, the performance of my colleagues as well. The, the, the governing bodies of medicine, I think, have let the general public down with some of the misinformation that they've also spread. Um, uh, people who should be respected and be just walk the line of telling the truth have kind of gotten mixed up in the politics and the, you know, of course, the influence of the big pharmaceutical industry. And um, as, a, as a doctor, it, it's been disappointing to me. That, that, that's the best way I could say it. I, I, I've lost faith in some of the bodies that I yeah. should be taking my direction from. I see that in a lot of different institutions, uh, unfortunately. Hopefully it's, uh, it's a phase and uh, we'll come back to a more rational thinking, thinking about science as science and not something political, just like we did about debating any kind of topic. Um, you should be able to have a conversation and not just yelling at one another. But, uh, I would hope so. I, I don't see a way out of it. I see us being so different today than we were. Uh, you know, the, the one example was when the polio vaccine was developed by, by Jonas Salk, and the, the public was clamoring for this because it was a life-saving um, product, and there was no controversy. There was no debate, and, and it did not roll out without speed bumps. Right. Um, there were there were lots of that vaccine that inadvertently contained active virus and children got polio from the vaccine, Uh, a conspiracy theory or a recall of the vaccine. There was a, okay, we've got to fix this because we've got to save the the general public from this disease that's killing and crippling people. Um, We just don't seem to be moving together nowadays. And the medical profession is partly to blame. I hope that, um, but as you said, I, I hope we can correct that and get back on track. Smash all the cell phones. <laughs> get rid that of social media. <laughs> but uh, that, that wouldn't hurt. Yeah, that's not going to happen, though. Anyway, in the minute or two we have left, uh, real quick, what else are you writing? you have anything else planned or any appearances, discussions coming up? Well, right now I'm going to be spending some time marketing this book. Um, I... I want to market it to the military community and to the community at large. I think it's much more than a war story. It's, it's really should appeal to anyone who's interested in the human condition and, and the family dynamics between especially fathers and sons. Um, the next project I have on my mind is really sort of autobiographical. Um, my life as a doctor and I've sort of touched on this, my feelings about the medical profession and how it's changed in the 35 years that I've been involved in medicine. Um, so I'd like to document that, and I'm not sure I'm going to make a lot of friends 
by doing that, but um, I, it's going to be, let's just say, pretty unabridged. Hmm. Sometimes the truth hurts. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, Dr. Zuckerman, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.